This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mike. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Great to be back for another Monday episode. Yes. A lot happening in the world. Earthquakes down in Melbourne protests down in Melbourne. It's all happening in Melbourne. AM ch- starring on Channel 7 yeah, down in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you you made your debut on the Channel 7 News. Well, was I actually it, didn't it say debut? it. I actually didn't say it. But we, uh, for those who are unaware of what we're talking about, we were recording a podcast with uh, Owen and Kate from Rask Australia while the earthquake was happening and caught it all on camera, which is pretty intense. And it was picked up by Channel 7. No surprises there. It was a viral video. <laughs> we went viral. I mean, <laughs> well, it wasn't even our video. It was Rask Australia's, but nonetheless. Yeah, I didn't even feature on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. I think you did on the long form, but I think they trimmed it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, mate, they gave the people what they wanted. <laughs> So look, on today's show, we are going to do the 101 on the Woolworths buyback. A lot of questions coming through from the community on that. We're going to have a chat about what's going on with Evergrande and we will break down the latest SPAC that is uh, interesting, which is the DNA. And then we're going to close out with uh, a quick one on 13 stocks to hold for the next five years from some experts around Australia. So looking forward to today's episode. But before we do, Ren, some housekeeping Buy the book. Yes. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Keep the housekeeping short. Buy the book. If you're wondering why the book hasn't arrived yet, don't look at us. Don't look at Booktopia. Don't look at Amazon. Don't look at your local bookseller. Look at Australia Post. (laughs) That's it. Look at Australia Post. But uh, we would really appreciate your support. Um, So go and buy Get Started Investing. For anyone who wants to start their investing journey, it's going to be a great Christmas present. Get on that now. We also have a big favor to ask, and that is that we need your help to build our Get Started Investing Summer Series, Ren. That's right. We have done Summer Series on Equity Mates for a few years now. We want to do one on JSI, and we want to focus on your investing stories 
Bryce and I have made a lot of hay out of some of our investing stories, me losing everything on Slater and Gordon, Bryce following a mate's stock tip and, and losing all his money only to find that uh, the mate sold like directly after he gave the tip. Um, <laughs> but we know there's heaps of good stories out there. The bad ones, like I've just touched on, but also a number of great ones. And we, we love hearing other people's investing stories. You know, we always, whenever we have experts on, we ask them about their investing stories, their first investment and stuff like that. And we want to hear yours as well. So if you've got a great story, if you've got a mate that has a great story, uh, head over to our contact page, equitymates.com slash contact or email us at contact at equitymates.com. We'd love to get you on the podcast, chat about your story. We promise no hard questions, no but hard. we just want to we just want to hear the stories. Yes. So looking forward to hearing from you uh, and we will get in touch, but um, let's get on with it, Ren. Let's do it. So we've been getting a number of questions about the Woolworths buyback and you've done a bit of work to aggregate those questions and try and answer them all. So let's let's start at the top. Woolworths is doing a buyback. What does that mean? What's happening? Uh, so they've announced that they're going to be doing a $2 billion off-market buyback. Um, I guess the question is, well, what is a buyback? Hey, I'm asking the questions here. What is a buyback? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. So a buyback is where a company buys shares uh, back off its shareholders. Now, there are two ways that they can do this. They can do it on-market, which is literally going to – uh, the share market via the listed means, like just like you and I would buy stocks and, and buy stocks to the value of $2 billion in this case by Woolworths, and then they cancel those stocks from circulation. Or they can do an off-market, which is what Woolworths is doing, where they essentially go to their shareholders and ask for them to do it, uh, to buy back shares off the market. So it's not, not through a listed means. So I think it's worth pausing here and just quickly explaining why a company would destroy its own shares, uh, because it sounds aggressive. Yes. <laughs> there are two ways that companies can return capital to shareholders. They can pay a dividend or they can buy back shares. Now, in Australia, the dividend has been the preferred method of giving money back to shareholders, and that's because of the way we treat the taxation of dividends with franking credits. Australia is one of three countries that allow fully franked dividends, which means if the company pays tax on those dividends, you as the investor don't have to pay tax. In most other countries in the world, there's a double taxation problem. The company pays tax, and then you as the investor pay tax. And so in a lot of other countries, and here I'm thinking specifically about America, the buyback has been the preferred way to return capital to shareholders. And the reason it's returning capital to shareholders is if Bryce and I both own one share in a company with 100 shares, we both own 1% of the company. If the company buys back 50 shares from the market and destroys them, then Bryce and I own one share of a company that has 50 shares. So we both own 2% of the company. So you're returning capital to shareholders by giving them a bigger percentage ownership of the company. And so that's what Woolies are doing here. They're returning capital to shareholders, but not through dividends, but instead through a buyback. Yeah, well, there is a dividend component to the Woolworths <laughs> part. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a, a bit of the fundamentals there, and you, and you mentioned what it means for shareholders. So it does reduce the the shares outstanding. And we know that when that happens, there's just basic supply and demand. Less shares on offer can often reduce uh, result in a higher share price if the demand is, is still there for these stocks. So that's one sort of benefit. Another is that with less shares on offer, if you're looking at those sort of per share basis, 
earnings, dividends, they obviously increase in value as well. So those are some of the advantages, but you're right. It's, it's a massive thing over in the States and we've seen it this reporting season, pretty prolific here in Australia as well. So that's a 101 on what a buyback is. Let's get specific about Woolies. Uh, we got a lot of questions because a lot of people have got offers through their brokerage accounts saying, do you want to participate in this Woolworths uh, buyback? What does it mean? What do I have to do if I want to participate? Should I participate? Probably can't answer that because that's financial advice, but give me some broad strokes. Yeah. So what Woolworths have said is we want to buy $2 billion worth of shares back off our shareholders and we're going to do it off market. So the first thing is you don't have to do it. That's the first thing to consider. You've probably received a letter or through your brokerage, as you said, Ren. So yeah, you don't, you don't have to do it. If you do want to participate, the way that they're doing it is through a tender process. So essentially what they're saying is if you want us to buy your shares back, we're looking to do it within uh, a discount range from 10 to 14%. You put in a tender to us and say what you're willing to sell your shares at in that range. And then we're going to determine at a point in time in October uh, through that tender process, who will be buying the stocks from. I assume it's just they'll take the lowest price. Of course. Yeah. Or you can say that we will. I'm willing to sell my shares at the price determined by Woolworths at that point in time if you don't want to fiddle around with giving in uh, discounted price. So uh, I'm a Woolworths investor. I can sell my shares on the stock market at whatever the share price is, or I can tender at a discount. Why would I tender at a discount? Great question. So this all comes down to how Woolworths are going to be buying these back. And it's a big tax advantage play. And this is where you need to consider if it's right for you. So what Woolworths are essentially saying is of the price that we're going to buy it off you, $4.31 is actually going to be a return to you in capital. So cash, we're going to give you, say, if you're selling your stock for 35 bucks, we're going to give you $4.31 back in cash. The remaining amount is actually going to be paid as a fully franked dividend uh, assessable income. So as you mentioned there, Ren, uh, that component is where you get serious tax advantages. Well, both components, because if I bought a Woolworths share for $30, it's now $39. And I am saying I sold it for $4.31. You Huge get a massive capital loss, massive capital loss but exactly. then you get the franking credits as well. Exactly. That's and not bad. Yeah. So depending when you bought your shares, and this is the, the key component, depending when you bought your shares, also where they're held, if they're held in a super fund or uh, another sort of vehicle that also has tax advantages associated with it. And after the franking credit, you may end up actually coming out above the the share price that it's at in October. Once you claim the credit for the franked uh, income, and also you're then going to have a loss that you can carry forward if you're in a situation where you've bought it at a price that is higher than the $4.31. When's the last time Woolworths was below $4.31? Oh, like probably 1980. <laughs> I don't know if it ever was. Uh, I've gone back as far as I can on Google. Uh, if you bought it in like 2000. Okay, there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I imagine for a lot of retirees, it might be a very appealing offer to do it this way. But uh, look, if you've just bought your Woolies shares to get the Endeavor stock split, eight months ago or whatever, you know, you need to consider what it means from a tax advantage point of view because, yeah, you can probably sell it on the market at this stage. You're not going to be getting a capital loss. Yeah. So I think it's speak to an accountant or a professional financial advisor and figure out the tax implications. If you've made bulk cash on altcoins and NFTs this tax year and you need something to offset some of that, 
maybe this is a play. Yeah. If you're a long-term Woolworths shareholder and you want to hold it for the next 20 years, this is all just noise. Yeah. It just depends. Yeah. So if that's right. If you want to hold on to your shares, you're going to actually end up owning more of the company once the buyback is complete. And yeah, it's dependent on your situation. There we go. Cool. All right. Well, I hope that clarifies it for some people. Unfortunately, there's never an easy answer when it comes to should I buy or should I sell, but hopefully that helps people think about it. Let's move on to what has been the biggest story of the week. We've certainly made hay of it on our socials, um, and that is the Chinese real estate market. Yes. (laughs) It seems like it's the end of the world. If you if you read some headlines, it would sound like it was the end of the world. And like there is there is a number of very smart people saying it's the end of the world. Michael Burry uh, of the 2008 GFC Big Short fame has been tweeting about it. He does this weird thing where he tweets and then he deletes his tweets straight after. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's a Twitter account that's called Michael Burry Deleted that screenshots all of his tweets and then reposts them. Interesting. So <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it's a, it's a weird, uh, weird tactic from him. But let's start with the most recent news because, and then let's, let's go back. Um, last Thursday, Evergrande, which was, uh, has the inauspicious title of the world's most indebted property developer. Yeah. Over 300, 300 billion, billion US dollars in debt. Uh, it had about 120 million US dollars of interest payments due to its bondholders, and there was concern that it wouldn't be able to pay it. And so that's where a lot of the panic was in the past week. And, you know, markets were falling. Evergrande's bonds were basically trading at worthless. Um, their share price continued to fall. It's fall. It already has fallen like over eighty percent in the past twelve months. But people were worried that they wouldn't be able to pay this hundred twenty million of interest last Thursday. They struck a deal with their bondholders and they survived that payment deadline. And so everyone took a big sigh of relief because this property developer didn't default on their debt last week. But the bigger risk is still there. So let's take a step back and do a uh, – let's chat about what's going on. So – What is going why, on? Why has everyone suddenly become an expert in Chinese real estate markets and why is this company that no one had probably ever heard of until two weeks ago suddenly capturing headlines? Well, it all starts with the China property market that has gone through an incredible boom over the last decade – We've seen, you know, places like Beijing, um, Shanghai, Shenzhen, um, all rising sort of 500% plus since 2002. So, you know, if you look at other sort of real estate bubbles, Ireland, 100%, Spain, 230%. This is a significant property boom that's been happening in China. Um, I don't know what the percentages here in Sydney are, but it doesn't feel like it's 500%. We should have looked at that. (laughs) And yeah, so it's become very expensive. You know, there's a, you know, that price to income ratio when it comes to property, you know, cities in, you know, like London, it's 22 times, New York is 12 times. Um, but what are we seeing in China? About 40 times. In, in those tier one cities like Beijing, Shanghai and Shenzhen, 40 times. It's crazy. So basically the, di- times. <laughs> the, the dynamic since 2002 is, uh, China, China property has got more expensive, especially in those tier one cities. And you can understand the dynamics of that, lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, building a middle class. China, much like Australia, much like a lot of the world, Chinese consumers tie up a lot of their wealth in property. And 
you know, this has just led to a boom in the property market. Big Chinese developers have responded by taking on heaps of debt to buy land and to develop that land. And the supply of housing in China has just grown at an unbelievable rate, but prices have continued to grow, especially in these tier one cities. So everything's been okay. Yeah, it's it's weird, the dynamic though, because there's also many, many cities that have thousands and thousands of houses with no one in it. Well, this is where I was about to go. There are There's this concept of ghost cities in China yeah. where there's millions of apartments or apartments for millions of people and only like a few thousand people living there. It's crazy. I think there, I was looking it up yesterday. I think there's 50 ghost cities uh, in China. And we and when and we're talking cities, like these, there's millions of apartments. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not just they've thrown up a building and said that's our ghost city. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, like it's city. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, for a number of months, for some people, for a number of years, uh, I was reading an article. There was one Hong Kong private equity manager who was anonymously quoted as saying, "I haven't wanted to touch Evergrande for 20 years," and like he's flat out told all of the people that work for him, you're not allowed to touch Evergrande, equity or debt. For a long time, people have seen this risk in the Chinese property market. Like if you uh, a company that's heavily in debt, you rely on the market continuing to go the way that you want it to to service that debt. Like if the Chinese property market fell, then all of a sudden you're getting less income for your developments and then all of a sudden it becomes harder to pay debt. It might become harder to tap into debt markets to get more debt to service your existing debt. And basically that's the situation that Evergrande has found itself in. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as we said, uh, the immediate sort of payment crunch has been averted. Um, They've got through last week unscathed. But there's still a broader risk that they've got more debt that they need to pay and it's going to be difficult to do it. I guess in terms of some of the concerns that people have, so if these developers are struggling to pay their debt, they're going to have to clear inventory off their balance sheet and inventory off their balance sheet is apartments that they're trying to sell, unused land that they're trying to develop. They're going to have to clear that off to free up cash to pay their debt uh, and that could burst this Chinese property bubble which will slow down the Chinese economy. So that's that's risk one. Risk two is like a contagion risk. So if Ever, let's say Evergrande have to uh, sell stuff on the cheap to free up cash or they default on their debt and then they collapse, there's risk that there could be flow-on effects to other Chinese property developers mm. because they're in similar situations. They're, they levered up to make the most of this boom. Just on that though, didn't the Chinese government step in at some point to say you guys ought all need to deleverage. Yeah, which is why this has come to a head because mm. previously these companies could tap into a whole bunch of different funding markets to uh, get more debt to service their existing debt. And the Chinese government stepped in and a lot of those funding sources really dried up. It's this policy called a th- the three red line policy. Having said that, the, the only way that you can deleverage, I guess, well, one of the ways is to just start getting cash on your balance sheet and by selling property and th- that sort of stuff, they would have seen this coming. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, like the Chinese Central Bank has been calling out systemic risk in the property market for a while. Yeah. It's just now everyone's listing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Now, you said the only way that they can deleverage is... One uh, of the... <laughs> is to sell uh, inventory. You would think that's the case. Evergrande also had the uh, interesting play of 
floating an electric vehicle startup and rise <laughs> and raising, I think, about four billion dollars in cash from investors. Are you serious? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that is another way that you can uh, raise money if, if you need to in a pinch. <laughs> Fair play. But, yeah, you're right. It's it's something that government probably saw coming and I think the Chinese government don't want to crash the Chinese economy. Yeah. But they can go hard at companies in ways that other governments probably can't. Yeah. So in terms of risks, we've touched on – the real estate bubble bursting in China and that having a slowdown on Chinese consumer confidence and the wealth of Chinese consumers because so much of their wealth is tied up in property. So that's one. Number two is contagion in the property sector and other developers also follow Evergrande's suit and default. The third risk, and this is probably the scariest risk, and this is probably the most sensationalized one because Every financial media outlet loves to write the headline, China's Lehman Brothers moment, is that this property sector issue flows into other parts of China's and the global economy. Because Evergrande, so there was a letter leaked last year, um, in terms of who owns their debt, that 300 billion USD in debt, 128 banks and over 121 non-banking institutions. And so if similar to the global financial crisis where the American housing market, a lot of that debt was collateralized into products that uh, like really important financial institutions like Lehman Brothers held. When the property market collapsed, banks like Lehman Brothers also collapsed. And so the, well, the concern here is that a lot of the owners of these property developers' debts uh, could be holding things that are ultimately worthless and they're not going to get their money back on? And does that create systemic risk in like China's financial system? Well, the big question there is whether or not the government lets that happen. Yeah. Because yeah. they have the ability to step in and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, we're happy with an econ- some sort of economic slowdown. The property market's burst. Let's let that play out. But do we want this company to fully go bust and have that sort of an effect amongst financial institutions around the world? Maybe not, so we'll bail these guys out. Honestly, I reckon that's, yeah, that that's the most likely outcome here. I mean, maybe not. We don't. We just don't know. No. Like trying to predict what China is going to do, but they've got a big checkbook. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so so that's that's the concern. I guess the the question is, how concerned should we be? It, it's a tough one, but I think if you think about yourself retiring in twenty, thirty years you're probably not going to look back and say, I wish I'd I wish I'd hedged the Chinese property market risk better. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at what the market did, everyone was making it out that it was by Armageddon and portfolios were seeing, were seeing a crash. We're, yeah, the markets were frothy. It's about time this happened. I mean, the S&P is down from – it's a down 3%. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, like, yeah. it's like the markets – it, it, they're not certainly reflecting that they're really worried about this at the moment anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally, I think the last thing we should touch on is the Australia-specific implication, yeah. given we are an Australian podcast. The biggest impact is going to be the price of iron ore because iron ore has had a day in the sun based not solely but uh, largely driven by China's property developers. If they are buying land and they're developing at a rate of knots – they need steel, mm, and that means mm. they need Australian iron ore to make that steel. Um, and now they don't need it. I know. <laughs> and funny story. So uh, my partner Harriet, she um, 
she had a bunch of BHP shares from years ago, years and years and years ago, and completely forgot about them. Finally, and came across them the other day. Amazing. This is awesome. Forgot about these shares. And then from that moment, it's been the iron ore collapse in price. (laughs) (laughs) And so her shares have just been tumbling. And she, what is this? I think there's been a bit. I'm just like, no. (laughs) I don't think Harriet's alone there. There's been a bit of noise in our Facebook group about people who bought like Fortescue, BHP, Rio for the dividends. And now they're like, what? Rookie. (laughs) Um, But. According to the latest government budget, um, for every ten dollars the iron ore price falls, the Australian budget loses one point three billion in receipts, and Australia's nominal GDP falls by six point five billion. Wow! So you know, Australia Australia relies on a high iron ore price. The government who are trying to get the budget back into surplus one day uh, rely on a high iron ore price. So there are Australian effects and that's why we saw the Australian share market fall last week driven largely by, you know, those miners. Um, but I think I think there's always something to be worried about day to day is my big takeaway. And like, sure, the worst could happen. We could see contagion in the Chinese property development market that spreads to Chinese financial institutions that then spreads to the global economy. Sure. Like there, there is a risk that that happens. I don't know what percentage you give that risk or how remote that is. But yeah, I mean, to that point exactly, at the same time this is all going on, you've got the Fed over in the States talking about when they're going to be winding back on their $120 billion per month bond buying program. You've got some sort of a cool off of the American economy. You've got this sort of lock up on the debt ceiling stuff that's going on. Like there's there's all these factors that are going on that it's not just uh, about the Chinese property market at the moment. And you're right, keep an eye on the long term. And my final takeaway is it's been a really bad year for things that start with the word ever. Ever grand and then ever given in yes. the Suez Canal. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my strategy for the rest of the year is short, short. everything that starts with ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll try and think of something else. I can't. Can't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ren, let's take a quick break before we um, have a chat about a pretty amazing SPAC that's happened over in the States and then um, close out with 13 companies for the next five years. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, Ren, 
We know that there's been a lot going on in SPAC world, and uh, I'll let you have a chat about the latest that has come across our desk DNA. But for, but for those that are unaware, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. It's been all the rage over in the States. Essentially, it's a, a company that is listed, a shell company, a holding company that then goes out and raises all of this money from investors. And then, then they have two or three years to then use that money to actually go and acquire privately held companies to bring them uh, onto the public markets. And a great example of this is a recent merger that took place with a company called Ginkgo Bioworks, Ren. Yeah, that's it. The largest ever SPAC merger. So the SPACs have had a tough year after, you know, some Big years and some big names, Virgin Galactic, DraftKings, you know, there, there's some big names that have gone public via SPACs, but SPACs have really fallen off this year. They aren't aren't doing that well as a group, but the largest merger has taken place, $15 billion. And this company is one that just is fascinating. Like for me, this is, it's just really cool. So basically, Inc. Go, they focus on programmable DNA. So basically, rather than manufacturing things out of petrochemicals, they make things out of biochemicals. The company was started in 2009 by a team of MIT scientists, and they make uh, made-to-order microbes and bacteria that enable customers to grow products rather than manufacture products. Makes sense so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clear as mud. Clear as mud. <laughs> it's it's it is it's just weird conceptually, and it's your crazy. mind your it's mind crazy. goes to a number of places. But um, basically, the the company the way they sum it up is uh, they program cells, i.e., DNA, in the same way that other companies program computers with code. So some of the some of the products that the company uh, has created using this synthetic biology, editing DNA um, and making these made-to-order microbes or bacteria or whatever, um, they've made food ingredients, they made cosmetics, they've made medicines. They are essentially using biology to create new products. Now the question then becomes like, how do you do this on an industrial scale? How do you do this? Um, for big commercial customers and like how is this a business that goes through a $15 billion SPAC merger, they operate biofoundries. Now, the foundry model uh, is probably well known to those who are interested in semiconductors. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, really, uh, I guess, pioneered the foundry model where where, uh, companies come to them with specs or what they want to achieve and then TSMC have the expertise and the facilities to create other companies' products, and then they – so they're this sort of like essential point in the um, manufacturing chain, and they've enabled companies that don't have the expertise or the capital to create their own semiconductor foundry to play in the semiconductor space, and that's enabled companies like NVIDIA and AMD and the like. Now, that concept is important – because Ginkgo operate biofoundries. So tell me what the hell that is. Yes, I have this Prezzo in front of me. Uh, I'm assuming it's one of their investor presentations. It's titled, We Program Cells for for Our Customers So They Can Develop New Products. On the left-hand side, it has an input, which is customer specs, that goes into 
a section where they say that they design, write, and debug DNA code using software, a bunch of hardware and automation, but then things like um, genetic coding and all sorts of incredibly um, amazing, I guess, it's just mind-boggling. And then out of that on the right-hand side spits your output, which is essentially a cell that's been programmed to your specifics and and you can use that how you how you will. And so I guess many companies just come to them and say, we want these cells, this is how we want it to perform, and that's that foundry model. Yeah, so let's get specific and talk to some examples because – that will that will help ground what the hell is going on here. Um, some of the partnerships that they've um, formed uh, with with companies that are using them for their foundry for their bio foundries, Roche or is it Roche? The chocolates? No, uh, it's a pharmaceutical company. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so together with uh, Roche, uh, they've uh, they're creating new antibiotics to combat antibiotic resistant bacteria. With Robotet, uh, they're creating new flavors and fragrances at commercial scale. Uh, with Kronos Group, uh, they're creating cannabinoids. Now, I know this one's exciting for you as a... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, but in, uh, in weed, THC and CBD are the are sort of very highly present, but there's also all these other chemicals that are not really that present at, at like... In meaningful scale, CBC, CBG, THCV, um, and Ginkgo are manufacturing them in larger quantities to, I guess, find new, you know, uses for cannabis and new treatments and stuff like that. So, like all of these partnerships, where they're working with companies from across these industries, you know, food, pharmaceuticals, cannabis, to create new biological products. So that's that's step one of their business. Where on their business plan do they start going into the human genetics? <laughs> <laughs> Is that where this whole thing's going? I didn't see that in any of their material. Is that where it's going though? Uh, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly. But the so that's number one, and you know the revenue stream there is they get, um, you know, they get paid for people to use their foundry. The second part of their business is actually partnering with these companies to create new companies, essentially. And so basically they partner with companies with domain expertise or field expertise to create products and that spins off new companies and then they either get paid royalties, uh, Ginkgo either get paid royalties or they hold equity in these new companies that are developed. So there's a few that have um, come out of their biofoundries already. There's Join Bio, which is working in advanced agriculture, um, Alonia, which is working in wastewater treatment, and Motif Foodworks uh, that work in food technology. So, I mean, you can see a world where they can continue to create new products that that themselves companies can be built around, like meaningful companies can be built around, and um, then they can be equity owners in those companies or just get paid a royalty whenever that product is used. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Truly fascinating. But Ren, you mentioned that it was a $15 billion merger, one of the largest or the largest. The largest. Where does that stand though in terms of uh, evaluation for this thing? So the technology and the story is incredibly exciting. As an investment, it is expensive. Now, this is something I don't understand, and if any Equity Mates listeners are listening and can explain this to me, I would appreciate a DM. The merger was for $15 billion, 
but the market cap of the company is only $2.5 billion. Don't get it. But still, with a $2.5 billion market cap, the valuation is expensive. This is an incredibly new technology. The company earned $64 million in revenue from their foundry in 2020, and that gives them a price-to-sales ratio of 40, which is expensive. Yeah. Well, yeah. In tech world. (laughs) True, true. And the company themselves don't expect to be profitable until 2025. So, you know, like there's there's, for me, this is an incredible story and I just love to think about like where this world is going and like what this means in terms of, you know, new medicines, new products, moving away from petrochemicals, advances in, you know, synthetic biology, your concern about what it means for like programming human DNA is a fair concern. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like at some stage it's inevitable that this is where this stuff goes. Well, I mean, with CRISPR and stuff, that's already on the cards. Yeah. Yeah. I think with these types of um, companies and particularly the foundry model in certain um, industries, incredibly high barriers to entry here. This is not like a company that you and I will just go, you know what? That's that's fascinating. We can see that working. Let's go start this up. Like, you've got to be in the know, incredibly highly skilled. Yeah. I'm assuming the the infrastructure to go into doing this is incredibly expensive. So, you know, a lot of positive sort of economics when it comes to this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the 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 moat is obviously like there's a barrier to entry in terms of cost. There's a barrier to entry in terms of expertise. But the other moat is that like. If you can be first mover in this space and you can really have a lot of proprietary knowledge about how to do things, like that should be self-reinforcing. Like the better you can understand how to program DNA, how cells work, how, you know, there's a bunch of stuff they're doing around the fermentation process. And like if they can master that and then they can find more applications for that before any, and like everyone else has to play catch up, there's a, there's a real like first mover advantage in terms of the knowledge that they can gain. So it's a pretty fascinating story um, and that's why I love investing. It's like you just, yeah. you just see these these incredible stories and whether or not they play out, like the human ingenuity and endeavour to create something like this is pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. So that is listed. It's available. If you're really interested, you can go and check it out and um, get on the – the ticker code is DNA. Yeah, over yeah, in the States. Over in the States. So go and check that out. Nice, Ren. Well, we'll just close out really quickly. I came across an article that was titled 13 Stock Picks for the Next Five Years. Got to love the clickbait of the of the title. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And this is from 13 investors uh, from an article on Livewire. So- I think what stood out to me, though, is just the home country bias and no offence to the experts, well, but the bef- boringness. Before before you <laughs> giving you, give your commentary, why don't you tell us what the stocks are? In uh, a minute or less. So we had Alphabet, Microsoft, IDP Education, Safran, Woodside, West Farmers, Woolworths, Equity Trustees, Illumina, Fisher & Paykel, Disney, Calix, and West Farmers again. Okay. So of the 13... Nine were from Australia. Yes. Three were from the States. Yes. And one from Spain. Okay. Like home country bias guys. And and a lot of them are pretty <laughs> boring. <laughs> and and I'm not going to call out the experts, but 
the the thesis for Woolworths, I'm like Woolworths for the next five years. The thesis was because it's going to be around. It's going to, oh, okay. it's going to still be here. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not sure about any other company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the, the question though, before you just really start teeing off on, on this article, um, was it uh, 13 stocks that will outperform in the next five years or was it just name a stock that you're owning for the next five years? Because potentially it's like, potentially the fact that it's going to be around and probably bigger than it is now, maybe that's, maybe that's just answering the brief. Boring brief, then. <laughs> fair, fair. Like, I'm not sure exactly what the brief was, but when I think about stocks for the next five years, I'm not thinking about stocks, quote, I know it's going to be here in five years and I know sales are going to be roughly in line. Roughly in line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could probably pick a sales number where it's going to be. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 13 stocks that you can do a perfect five-year DCF for. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's just not fun. Interesting that Wes Farmers, um, Wes Farmers came in there twice. Yeah. Um, one of the experts who picked that, uh, the reason she picked it was because she just doesn't think there's any better business in Australia than Bunnings. Yeah. And um, it's obviously Wes Farmers owns Bunnings. So for her, that's just it's just going to continue to be the amazing business that it is. Uh, Microsoft Alphabet makes total sense. If I was to pick something off this list, I would probably be going along those lines. Disney, I like. Um, Calyx is interesting, a smaller cap. That's mm. the one that's in that um, concrete kiln yep. space. Um, in the- that, that is the, the, of these, that's the pick that's answered your brief, which is give me, a, give me something that's a bit high risk but could run. Yeah, but it's also in the climate change piece. Like there's some good tailwind trends well, yeah, behind yeah, it. That's yeah, why, yeah, so I, I like that. But yeah, it's just interesting to see where fund managers' heads are and when they think about these sorts of companies and, and when they think about what they're trying to achieve in a five-year time span. Woodside is an interesting one for me. Yeah. Would I, I mean, five years, sure, and you know this merger is going to be good for it, but – uh, if I was trying to pick something for the next five years, I would be avoiding yeah, not oil and gas. Oil and gas, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. So I just, I just, yeah, thought that was interesting. You know, as a fund manager, you're you're obviously not trying to lose clients' money, and so your your risk tolerance, and I think that's kind of displayed a bit here. And it's it's just interesting, dif- differing from how you know we might approach this if we were to say what's the next stock for five years. I find it interesting that they have the dates that the stocks were picked, and both. Alphabet and Microsoft were picked in February and then it seemed like everyone went a bit soft on tech and came back to Australia. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird because, yeah. I mean, we had a bit of a peak in February, but fundamentally those businesses haven't changed. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, nice one, Ren. Another great episode, covered a lot of ground there. We'll be back next week with another episode of um, uh, EM Chat. Just a reminder that if you do want to come on to our Get Started Investing series, uh, hit us up on at contact at equitymates.com. There'll be a link in the show notes as well. Uh, it's going to be an awesome series later this year. So please uh, dob in a, a mate who might have an amazing story or come on yourself. We won't bite. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, watch out for our episode on Thursday where we're interviewing Paul Wilson, who is the uh, co-founder of Bailador Technology Investments. Absolutely. Well, Ren, always good to chat stocks and we'll see you next week. Sounds good. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. 
All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.